The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began to make a discerned study of what God's Word, the Bible, has to say in context about the creation ordinance and institution of marriage. As before, our goal is by God's grace to come away with the necessary information revealed by God to understand, initiate, maintain, grow, and fully appreciate the beauty and sanctity of the marriage relationship as designed and intended by God. It is also our goal to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which all too often accompany those who are skeptical, critical, or even hostile to God's Word. In episode 1, we broke ground on the fact that as opposed to the idea that marriage is some simplistic arrangement defined according to the dictates of constant influx humanistic variables based upon nothing more than convenience and self-gratification, marriage is in reality a creation ordinance designed, 
instituted, maintained, and blessed by God as a type pointing towards its intended substance. The substance, as was discussed, was and is the relationship between Christ, who is the substance of Adam, and his bride, Eve, the church, who are a special creation like Eve, born from the sacrifice and death of Jesus. In the second episode, we began to examine further evidence and insight regarding biblical types and their substance. We looked at the account of the meeting and marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, as well as the ancient Jewish wedding, as classical examples of the type of marriage. We also looked at Adam and Eve's respective roles in the fall, beginning with Genesis chapter 3. In part 3, we began our goal diligently searching out Scripture in an effort to better understand the biblical meaning and understanding of marriage as well as to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which man, sin, separation, and the world have over time incorrectly attributed and or attached to marriage, God, or His Word. As we concluded episode 3, we had just examined several scriptural references in Matthew and Mark made by Jesus regarding marriage and divorce. In parts 4 through 7, we turned our attention to the New Testament epistles and letters. In this episode, we continue with the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, we read, quote, And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Unquote. Here, Revelation chapter 19 is understood to be the undisputed culmination of God's redemptive plan, where we get an early trailer view of history in advance. We see a great multitude of those whom God has redeemed giving praise to God. God is poised, prepared to celebrate the marriage of the Lamb. John, the writer of Revelation, borrows from the well-known imagery of the ancient Jewish wedding, where in the chronology of that event, the actual wedding does not typically come until after a two-year waiting period. During this period, the bride makes herself ready, preparing her wedding attire, making it clean and white. At an unknown time, the father of the groom sends his son to suddenly take his bride in a staged abduction. The son takes his bride to the father's home where the son has been busy preparing a place for the two to live. As soon as the two are there, they consummate their marriage and then celebrate a marriage supper with invited guests. So here again, we see the oft-repeated theme of the bride, who is the church, the outcalled ones, 
whom the Father has chosen to be united, I married with his Son through Christ's life, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. We see Jesus tell his disciples, like the groom, that he goes to prepare a place for them in his Father's house, and that he will return for them. In the meantime, the bride, the church, with the power and help of the indwelling Holy Spirit, works to sanctify the bride, make her pure, and be prepared for the return of the groom. The bride remains ready, prepared for the groom, whose return will be imminent and sudden. Eventually, the groom returns and takes his bride to his father's house, where they celebrate the wedding feast together. The two are united, Christ and his bride, the church, the outcalled ones, like the type, man and wife. The bride, like Eve, who was taken out of Adam, is now finally again one with the second Adam, Christ. They share fellowship, unrestrained by sin, separation, or rebellion. Once again, like in the garden, they walk together and what God has joined now together, no man, no power anywhere can put asunder. Now at this point with eight episodes under our belt, we should be able to paint a summarized picture which places the issue of biblical marriage as well as the larger picture of ultimate authority into perspective with which everything else fits. To review, we have only two worldview paradigms with which are available. One, in the first, man is the center and measure of all things. Man is like an unsecured, constantly moving lighthouse who declares himself as God and demands allegiance as the one source of ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, reality, beauty, and significance. Under this umbrella, marriage, as well as the definitions of men and women's being, function, and roles, are constantly afloat as they chase the lighthouse which is adrift in the endless ocean of subjective opinion, consensus, percentage, and culture. The ocean itself is buffeted and tossed by the rages of the storm called sin and rebellion. If we were to attempt to diagram the dynamics of this paradigm in action throughout history, the best representation we could come up with is to draw a picture of each man's hand on a philosophical roulette wheel, with each man repeatedly spinning until he gets the end result which pleases him. 2. In the second, God is the creator, sustainer, center, and measure of all things. God does not change. God is perfect, holy, righteous, and sovereign in all that he does. God is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, reality, beauty, and significance. Under this umbrella, marriage as well as the definitions of men and women's being, function, and roles are revealed within the complete Word of God in its proper context. If we were to attempt to diagram the dynamics of this paradigm, 
we might envision a series of spheres at various vertical levels. In the top uppermost sphere, we would find God, who is sovereign over every other possible sphere. God designed and created every other sphere and is in control of every other sphere. In the subsequent lower spheres, we would find people, names, dominions, kingdoms, and everything created which exists anywhere as being in submission to God. In the next sphere, we find a label reading, quote, God's church, unquote. Under the Old Covenant, we see various prophets, judges, and the priests of the tabernacle. In the New Covenant, Jesus is our great high priest, and every believer can approach God the Father in the Holy of Holies via Jesus Christ, covered by his shed blood and imputed righteousness. God equips his church, the outcalled ones, via his Holy Spirit to call some as pastors, some as teachers, evangelists, prophets, and various other leaders of his body under the chief shepherd, our God and King, Jesus Christ. These various members of the body of Christ are called and equipped to serve Christ and his body under his authority as expressed within his word to do his will on earth. This being said, it should be understood that when we say, quote, God's church, unquote, God is not simply defining his church as any person or persons who chooses to apply the title or hangs up a sign over a building. Nor are we defining God's church as a group of people, large or small, rich or poor, popular or not. Instead, God's church is defined according to God's word, the Bible, in its complete context. For more information on this aspect, I would recommend the listener to the two-part episode entitled Questions About the Church. In another sphere, we find the label, quote, marriage, unquote, and by extension, quote, the family, unquote. Within this sphere, as stated, God is sovereign over its various members. God has designed and designated the husband, the man, as being the one responsible as being prophet, priest, and king of his family as articulated by the Bible in context. The wife, the woman, is equal in being, nature, character, and personhood, but is designed and designated by God to demonstrate submission to the husband to the degree that the husband is in submission to God and his word in context. The children then are designed and designated by God to demonstrate submission to God, his word in context, and their parents and godly authority in general. In yet another sphere, we find the label of, quote, government, unquote. Government can be a local municipality, a county, a state, the federal government, or even the United Nations. The government's citizens are generally obliged to obey the various laws which these governments enforce insofar as the laws do not deny or contradict the sphere of God or his church. 
The citizens also contend to exercise and enjoy various rights and privileges which various codified documents extend to them. Within this paradigm, while doubtlessly many would disagree, the authority of any government, as well as the rights and responsibility of its citizens, ultimately flow from the authority and rights given by God, according to his word, in context. So since Genesis 3, the two paradigms have maintained a polarized tension between one another. In the first, we have God and his sovereign will moving all things according to his perfect pleasure towards reconciliation, reward, and judgment. Ultimately, those whom God is pleased to choose to himself will be restored to full fellowship, to joy, and everlasting life. In the interim, God is sovereign over everything and seeks to lead his people to be progressively conformed into the image of his Son. Within this process of submission and obedience via faith in the finished work of Christ, each believer, if sincere, will be drawn into closer alignment with the sphere of God's sovereign and perfect will. As believing individuals form believing families, those families are likewise drawn. Families form communities. Communities form government. Eventually, all things are in alignment with God. However, because of sin and rebellion, what we see in fact are those who, to one degree or another, rebel against God and His Word. As individuals, families, communities, and governments, they oppose God and His Word. They either deny that the sphere of God exists at all, they redefine it, or they seek to make it subservient to that of the government, the family, and the individual. Consequently, we see governments, leaders, and or persons setting themselves up for worship. Governments create state-approved religion. Leaders and people create cults where they are God. Individuals are taught and believe that they are or can become God. We see government entities increasingly intruding upon the sphere of God's church, marriage, family, and the roles of men and women. Our job as believers is to be sober, to wake up, and to understand that there is a war between the two paradigms. Moreover, they are not just paradigms, they are two realities. Each reality is a path leading to an eternal destiny from which there is no escape and no other alternatives. In one, we ultimately have Satan, who would lead as many as possible, by whatever means, to be cast into the lake of fire created for him by God. In the other, we have God, who is the author, creator, sustainer, redeemer, judge, and Lord of all things. We have the revelation by God that he is victorious over this war. Those who are called by him to salvation are likewise victorious. It is every person's responsibility to diligently seek him out, to call upon his name, 
and to earnestly repent and believe on the finished work of Jesus. With this overview of scripture regarding marriage and the relationships between man, wife, and God, we now turn our attention to addressing a few questions which are typical of those raised by many. Question number one, doesn't the Bible authorize discrimination against women? Well, it depends on your starting point, your worldview, your paradigm. If you start from the assumption that man, i.e. humans, are the ultimate source of authority, then each man and or woman adopts their own opinion, belief, assumption as the ruler by which they measure all things. Anything which does not agree with our opinion, belief, or assumption is automatically characterized as being incorrect, in error, hateful, biased, or wrong. The philosophy of this belief system finds its quintessential example in secular humanism. Thus, those lost in the mire of secular humanism and its ideals will start with the conviction that they are the center and measure of all that is. Any attempt by anyone to place things into a different context or to adopt a different worldview from which we judge meaning, morals, truth, etc. will automatically be seen as discrimination, bias, intolerance, hatred, etc. If one starts with God and the understanding that God is sovereign in all that he does then whatever God designs, creates, and sustains is an extension of God's perfection. At the same time, we need to understand that from Genesis 3 forward, until God creates all things new, God's creation, including men, women, and marriage, all suffer under the effects of sin. Thus, when we look at the Bible and proceed to attempt to analyze what it does or does not quote-unquote authorize, we would do well to remember that the Bible is not a book which is limited exclusively to quote-unquote authorizing things. Many things in the Bible are simply historical narrative of what happened without any comment as to whether or not God agreed, approved, or quote-unquote authorized it. Many things are a historical recording of what happened to mankind as a result of our sin. This obligates us then to read the Bible in context using proper grammar, exegesis, and discernment. If we do so, then we have no difficulty seeing that in fact man, beset by sin, very often does discriminate against various groups, including women. On the other hand, God designs, creates, and sustains many things with order which are according to his sovereign will and purpose. Our options are to acknowledge, submit, and obey his will, or to rebel against it. So the answer is no, the Bible never authorizes discrimination against women. Rightly understood, the Bible reveals God's design for order and structure within all of his creation, including mankind. Question number two. 
Does the Bible say women have lower standing than men? The question above labors from a hidden assumption. The assumption is that we are required to choose according to the wording that either men and women are completely equal and the same in every way, or one is superior in every way possible, while the other is by necessity inferior in every way. The trouble is that neither idea is taught in the Bible in context. The answer is no. Men and women are equal at creation, equal in sin, and equal at redemption. Men and women are both equal in being, character, nature, personhood, and significance in that they are both created in the image of God. But God has designed and created men and women with differences in their respective roles and functions. Secondly, God created everything according to a pattern which clearly exhibits order, structure, and rank concerning these roles and functions. Question number three. Doesn't the Bible say that women must obey their husbands? Well, it depends. Remember, the starting point begins with the ultimate sphere of authority, which is God as revealed by his word in context. Everyone, men and women, are held responsible first and foremost to either submitting, respecting, obeying, and honoring God, or rebelling against him. So, to the degree that the husband is submitting, respecting, obeying, and honoring God, the wife should have no problem submitting, respecting, obeying, and honoring her husband. The reason is that they, in that context, both are ultimately submitting, respecting, obeying, and honoring God. The dilemma arises when the husband fails to one degree or another to submit, respect, obey, or honor God. The solution in that case is to remember that no one man or woman should allow any other person to prevent them from their individual responsibility to obey God. Both men and women should always focus their primary goal of obeying God. If a woman's husband is obeying God, then she is obeying God, and in the process she is obeying her husband. If a woman's husband is not obeying God, then the woman is obeying God despite her husband failing to do so. She is praying and setting an example for her husband until such time that God is pleased to lead him to a place where he will receive repentance and assume a position of leadership with his wife by the loving example of Christ to mutual obedience in God. Question number four. Doesn't the Bible prohibit women from speaking in church? Answer, no. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 5 states, Quote, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. Unquote. Verse 17 of the same chapter makes it clear that the praying 
and or prophesying is being discussed in the context of believers in the church, quote, coming together, unquote, i.e. general church assembly. This admonition must be contrasted with 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 32 through 35, from which some come to the out-of-context teaching that women are supposed to be completely silent in church, and sometimes by extension they are to be silent everywhere and never speak. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 32 through 35 state, quote, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. If they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church." So the answer to the general question is no, women are not prohibited from praying and or prophesying in church, both of which require speaking to accomplish them, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. When we come to the prohibition given in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34, we are dealing with a specific kind of quote-unquote speaking. In order to clarify, we need to understand the historical, cultural context of the passage. To begin with, the Corinthian church, as indeed the apostolic church at large, was born out of the Jewish synagogue. As such, the customs and attitudes were still, in many ways, very Jewish in its attitude and form of worship. In this case, men and women, even married couples, still sat in different sections with the men on one side and the women on the other. Today, men and women all sit together regardless. Thus, many couples who have been married will perhaps confess that at times a question will arise during the service. Perhaps someone does not hear what was said or there is a confusion over an issue with the sermon being given. If so, I'm sure that there has been those times when, for example, one spouse will lean over and whisper, What did they say? Or, What about this? This is enough of a distraction. Imagine what one or more spouses attempting to talk to or carry on questions from separate sections during a sermon would look like. It would be confusion and interruption. Apparently this was the case in the Corinthian church. To maintain order and peace, Paul counsels the women who were apparently the ones who were mainly guilty of such behavior in the Corinthian church to instead converse and ask questions of their husbands at home as the next logical course of action. However, we should not infer from this particular situation that men are absolved of any responsibility to demonstrate order, respect, and peace within the church. The first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5 makes this clear with a blanket statement for both men and women stating, quote, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, 
but of peace, as in all churches of the saints, end quote. The statement regarding the responsibility of women to remain silent is better understood in part as addressing a limited audience then in the Corinthian church where the historical culture, as well as the dynamics and design of the church, required a return to strict order and peace. To put it simply, there were apparently a group of women within the church of Corinth who were making enough disruption during the service by asking questions or by attempting to communicate with others that Paul found it necessary to address the issue and provide a solution. But the problem was not speaking in general at appropriate times, such as singing, prayer, or prophecy in an orderly, timely manner. The problem was speaking at inappropriate times, which resulted in disruption and disorder. So ultimately, the test was, and is, whether or not the speaking, communication, or anything else which men or women do causes disorder or disruption. Secondly, as previously discussed, God is a God of order and authority. Hence, a submitted Christian must submit to that order which God has ordained. God is always sovereign in control of all things. Under the sphere of God, we have God's messengers here on earth, the church, his outcalled ones, his overseers, his ministers, pastors, teachers, bishops, elders, deacons, leaders, prophets, etc. Then we have the sphere of family where we find the husband as God's designated head of authority over the family. As such, Paul's comments regarding the woman's role in the church take nothing away from the fact that both the man and the woman are created equal in their being, nature, character, and personhood. But they are different in their created roles and authorities within the family. Hence, when Paul states that it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church, he is again not talking about generally accepted respectful speech in the church, such as timely prayer, prophecy, singing, teaching, etc. Instead, what Paul is referring to is speech and or communication, which is in some manner directly or indirectly usurping God's designated role of authority bestowed upon her husband or other godly men in general. It also refers to men or women whose speech or conduct distracts or disrupts the order and peace of the church service in general. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Please join me for part 9 and the conclusion of What God Joins Together. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. The world falls